you would, please join me and turn to Acts chapter 15. As we come before God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are a desperate people. Outwardly, we may look like we have no needs, but Father, you know the truth. We are desperate to be fed your word. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Father, would you be pleased to fill your hungry people? Would you enable us by faith to see your glory, to see your truth? Would we, as we have just sung in your word, see a fountain of grace? Be pleased, Father, to meet with your people, through your word, and by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the bulletin was printed here at the building um, earlier this week, and uh, it went to print too early. Went to print too early. I'm sorry, um, but there's a new title, and you might say, uh, titles, titles, what's the big deal about titles? Well, sometimes I get lost and disoriented. Y'all like that? And and a title helps me stay oriented. It helps me stay on track. And so the real title uh, is A Disagreement and a Debate. A Disagreement and a Debate. Um, more about that in just a moment. Uh, I want to ask this question. Um, have you ever been in a situation uh, where you realize you don't know what to do? I mean... you. Maybe you don't admit it outwardly, but at least inwardly, you say to yourself, I, I really don't know what to do. Well, there's a passage in 2 Chronicles 20 uh, that I've gone to time and time again. It's where God's people uh, were in a difficult situation. Uh, there was a horde of surrounding hostile armies, and, and they said this in 2 Chronicles 20, 12b, we do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on the Lord, the covenant-making, the covenant-keeping Lord. Now, although that's a specific context at a certain time and a place in, in the history of the people of God, there's a general principle behind that. It's this, look to the Lord together. Look to the Lord together. Notice but our eyes are on you. I'm telling you, it seems to me that a lot of good biblical um, theology comes out of a study of pronouns. Pronouns. We in America, in the West, we're individuals, but we miss the corporate aspect of the faith. And here it is, our eyes are on you. And that's what we're going to see in our text today, the church coming together and looking to the Lord together. The eyes of the church are on the Lord. And indeed, uh, that's what I, along with one of our ruling elders, are going to be doing this Thursday, excuse me, this Tuesday at our uh, fall presbytery meeting. We're going to come together as a church, a regional church, and we're going to look to the Lord. We're going to look to the Lord. Now, here we are at Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Most of your Bibles will even have that as kind of an editorial heading, the Jerusalem Council. 
It is the structural and theological center of the book of Acts. Um, Someone counted the number of English verses, um, or excuse me, English words. Um, In Acts 1 through 14, there are 12,285 English words. And from Acts 15 to 28, there are 12,502 words. Structurally, it's at the center. And theologically, it's at the center as well. Because you will see everything has been leading to this and everything will be flowing from it. It, It's a meeting. Uh, It's more probably correctly uh, assigned uh, as a consultation. It's not a council in the later technical uh, ecclesiastical sense. Um, And there's scholarly debate over the timing of this particular event, and it has to do with the number of times Paul visited Jerusalem uh, in Galatians 2. Is that the visit that you see in Acts 11, or is that the visit you see in Acts 15? So there's a little bit of debate on just when this took place. Um, I'm going to move from the Jerusalem Council to church councils in general. Um, Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, is entitled Of Synods and Councils. And it's in the back of the Trinity Hymnal, um, chapter 31, Of Synods and Councils. And it it speaks to the purpose of the church gathering together um, to go over doctrine, to help ensure uh, discipline. Um, It makes a comment uh, that you'll hear about in a little bit. The church councils may indeed err. Ever since the apostles, church councils can err. Um, I've been, one of the things I want to uh, make a comment or two about as we go forward here is, is just the importance of the church getting together, the importance of individuals being part of something like this, a local body. Um, I, I try to read a proverb a day, and as you know, Proverbs speaks of foolishness, it speaks of wisdom, it speaks of the way of the wise, it speaks of the way of the fool. Listen to a few of these Proverbs. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So that's, that's the, the fool. But listen to the wise man. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 11. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Well, what is a church council if not an abundance of counselors? Uh, in an abundance of counselors, there is victory, we read in Proverbs 24. And in Proverbs 15, we read this, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. I think that's helpful to just have the context of Proverbs uh, behind us as we go forward in looking at this church meeting, this church consultation, this church council. Now, Acts, of course, is not an empty book. It's it's not a dead letter. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful Scripture, the Word of God, is living and active. And these words, this passage, is useful. It is living and active, and God will use it in our lives. Um, If you think about the title of our series, here we look back at our history and we see how controversy in the church was addressed then. But as we move forward in our mission, we will see how controversy in the church should be addressed now. And as we ended last week by looking back and looking ahead, but always looking to Jesus, we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and finisher of our faith, the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
Because those who are secure in Christ, those who are secure in Him, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, they will have confidence. They will have courage, the courage that Stan prayed that we would have in the days to come. Now today and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the Jerusalem Council, and today we're going to consider verses 1 through 21 under two headings, the disagreement and the debate. Uh, Next week, we'll explore verses 22 through 35 as we focus on the decision and the declaration. And so first, let's turn our attention to the disagreement that led to the debate, the dispute that led to the meeting in Jerusalem. I want to start by reading uh, the last few verses of chapter 14. Remember, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch where they had been sent out from on that first missionary journey. And we read uh, beginning in verse 27 of chapter 14. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But notice how chapter 15 begins. Notice the first verse. Notice the first word, but. You know, it couldn't last, could it? That, that wonderful reception, that joy of hearing the missionary report that, that, that Paul and Barnabas, uh, that ministry that they had had amongst the Gentiles in particular. No, it couldn't last, but. But here's an inevitable controversy that arises about how the new Gentile converts were to be incorporated into the church. And it would be a crisis for the church because set before the people is is a vision. Either Christianity is just a reform movement of Judaism and will be stayed within the confines of Judaism going forward or Christianity, it burst out of Judaism. It is a, a, a new thing. It is going to go throughout the world. Jerusalem is no longer the center. That's what's before us. Luke, the historian, Luke, the narrator, makes the transition. But now let's consider just the first few verses. What's going on in Antioch? But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Some men came down from Judea and notice what they were doing. They were teaching. They were teaching. Thus far in Acts, we've seen both external threats to the church and internal threats. I'm always reminded at the oath of office that a public official um, uh, takes, a military officer, enlisted man takes, to defend the Constitution against what? All enemies, foreign and domestic. And so the church is going to have foreign enemies, and the church, as it were, is going to have domestic enemies. Foreign threats from the outside and threats from the inside. The issue has to do with circumcision and the law of Moses, not so much the moral principles of the Old Testament, rather the ceremonial regulations. 
And note, these men again are teaching. They're coming into the church. They're, so to speak, coming from the church into the church, and they are teaching. But as Paul and others and Peter and Barnabas and James will show, this teaching does not align with the truth of the gospel. This teaching it does not cohere with the gospel, doesn't agree with the gospel. You see, these men are objecting to make it in general terms. They're objecting to a grace and faith-based, circumcision-free gospel. I want us to skip verse 3 and go to verse 4. So they get to... Um, the Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas head up from Antioch to Jerusalem. And beginning in verse four, we read this. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Wow, it sounds just like their, their visit to Antioch sometime earlier. But we continue to read. But some, another but, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. You see, before, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And now it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary. If anything, these men are confident they are convinced, they are they're confident, they're absolutely certain. Now, being certain about some things is, is actually really good. You know, the truth of the gospel, who God is, who Jesus is, what sin is, what sin is done. You know, there are certain things that if we're not certain about it, we're on shaky ground. But I think all of us, and myself included, have a tendency to be certain about certain things that we don't need to be certain about. But they are confident. They're absolutely certain. Here, are the, 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 you know, it says the, the fair, what does it say? Uh, some, some believers, again, it's some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Well, Jesus' earthly ministry has come and gone, but we need to go back for a moment to that. Um, here they are criticizing the leaders of the church, Paul, Barnabas. They'll criticize Peter and James. Think back with me to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had quite a bit to say about the Pharisees. They, as we read the narrative accounts, I think back to our time in the gospel according to Mark, Pharisees observed Jesus. They were always around, observing, watching him, seeing if they could find out if he was doing something wrong, maybe writing it down. He's a rabbi, but he's wrong. Taking notes. You know, they, I think the Pharisees are operating under the principle, you know, that uh, the guys at Dragnet did, you know, anything you say can and will be used against you. They're looking for Jesus to trip up. They're looking for Jesus to be unfaithful to the law as they understood it. Jesus, of course, criticized the Pharisees. He pronounced woes. You look at uh, chapter 23 in particular, uh, and there's a lot of Jesus saying, woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside, but the inside is unclean. And of course, there's a major problem for all believers at times with hypocrisy. But I want us to turn to Matthew 23. 
And I want to look at a couple of things. First in verse 4. This is Jesus' observation of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them upon people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They're adding burdens. They're adding difficulty, Jesus is saying. Jump with me over to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is what Jesus says, there are weightier matters of the law. Some things Jesus is saying are more important than others. Jesus does not say the law is one size fits all. No, Jesus is saying some are weightier, some are less weight. So so let me ask you this. Do you recognize this? Do you recognize the degrees? Do you recognize the priorities? Jesus really does say there's a priority. Justice, love, mercy. You know, you can be really exact on tithing, taking 10% of these herbs but Jesus is saying in doing that you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel so how do we know what's weightier and what's less weight how do we know what's more important than others well the counsel of others where do we get wisdom in others but before you just criticize the Pharisees as as being out of hand. Remember that Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. More about that in a little bit. So we skipped verse three. We were in Antioch, then we were in Jerusalem. Let's look at Paul and Barnabas on the road. So being sent out on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. What a contrast. In Jerusalem, there's criticism. In Antioch, there's criticism. In Jerusalem, there's criticism. And what is there on the road? Great joy. Great joy. Why? People are hearing that Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And what is their response? Their response is great joy. It reminds us of Luke 15, 7. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is joy before the angels of God, Jesus continues, when a sinner repents. You know, one of the best litmus tests for you, for me, for the presence of saving grace of God in our hearts is whether they overflow in joy at the news that someone else has come to faith in Christ or someone else is growing in their faith in Christ. So before we go on, ask yourself this question. 
How do you respond to the work of Jesus in someone else's life? Are you overjoyed? Or are you already looking for the ways that their their salvation or their sanctification hasn't measured up yet? Is that your first tendency? Or is it to be overjoyed with the dead coming back to life and life slowly but surely stumbling, crawling, becoming more and more like Jesus? What a difference between Antioch and Jerusalem and the road. What's the issue? What's the issue here? Why is it so important? Well, the issue is, of course, having to do what's the basis of salvation and incorporation into the church. Is it the external sign or is it the internal reality? Because it's easy for all of us. I'm speaking to myself as well, especially. It's easy for all of us to focus on what our eyes can see, what our hands can do. But it's hard to trust God. It's hard to walk by faith and not by sight. Why is this so important? This external sign, this internal reality. It's because the gospel, the good news, is always going to be under attack, always going to be threatened. And it's always going to be threatened, I think, mostly by what is added to it, not what is subtracted from it. You know, I... um, Anytime I'm, I'm buying something, they, they always ask, do you want the plus version? You know, like, I want this subscription, but if you get the plus version, you know, you get all these more benefits. Of course, it costs a little more. But my friends, when it comes to the gospel, there is no plus version of the gospel. Because it's dangerous to add anything. Jesus and fill in the blank. This is a debate that's here in the first century. It's a debate that goes on today. Um, When we have our uh, presbytery meetings and we're uh, we're examining a man for ordination or things like that, we we have to understand his doctrine. What does he believe the Bible teaches? And we, we have to come to a conclusion about essentials. What's essential and what's non essential? And and we have these two expressions uh, do they strike at the vitals of religion? Do they strike at the deity of Christ? Do they strike at God as being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable? Do they strike at how Jesus is the one mediator between God and man? So there's this, do they strike at the vitals or are they hostile to the system of doctrine? Here, you'll see the defenders of the gospel, the leaders of the church, the the apostles, the elders, are going to defend the gospel, the essential aspects of the gospel. The issue was so significant and the opposing views are so irreconcilable that the appeal was made outside the Antiochian uh, congregation to the authority and wisdom resting in the apostles and elders of the mother church in Jerusalem. You see, the disagreement there leads to a debate among church leaders in Jerusalem. They, They are... As it were, going up to another court of appeal, they're asking for help. They're asking for wisdom. What, what a great principle. It's what happens with me. I don't know what to do. I, I work with our session. There's a wisdom in counselors. Our session doesn't know what to do. What do we do? We work with the presbytery. 
A presbytery doesn't know what to do. What do we do? We work with the general assembly. Is it foolproof? No. Is there safety and wisdom? Absolutely. Do people grow in their understanding? Absolutely. And we see that taking place. So the debate. Look at verses 6 through the first part of 7. Gathering to consider. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate... They're gathering to to seek both the clarity of the gospel and the unity of the church. And there's going to be a deliberative process of interpreting the church's experience in light of scripture. And first we come to Peter's speech. Peter's speech. I want to go ahead and read what Peter says. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Sounds like something we just sang about several times. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter is reminding them of what God has done. He's retelling his experience as an apostle. And remember, God chose Peter first to expand the gospel into the Gentile community. We read of his time with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Peter, in his experience, will say that faith, not circumcision or some external sign, is the real boundary between alienation and salvation. It's not some external sign. It's not something that you can do. It's something that God and God alone can do. Peter has learned from Jesus Finally, it seems, Peter is starting to get it, right? He's thinking about Jesus' warnings, external compliance without inward devotion. He's thinking about lips and hearts and are they aligned? He brings up this image of of yoke and, and some of the Jews saw a positive thing that we were to be yoked to the law. And the law, as Paul would say, is is good and righteous, but as a means of salvation, it it can't do it. The, The submission to the law for acceptance with God was an unbearable yoke of slavery for both Jew and Gentile, as Paul will say, excruciating detail in Romans. You see, Peter is just highlighting without saying it that there is a yoke. There is a yoke that fallen people can bear, right? It's the yoke that Jesus provides when he says, come unto me, all who are heavy laden, who are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Why? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a yoke. It's Jesus. It's his life, death, and resurrection. It's light for us because he bore it for us. In our place. And look at verse 11. I mean, did did Peter copy 
Paul, Ephesians 2 here. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Isn't that interesting? It's slight, but, but Peter's almost saying, look, God is saving the Gentiles through grace. And guess what? If he saves the Gentiles through grace, he's actually going to save us Jews by grace as well. You see, I think um, Peter, it took him a while to understand grace. And uh, about 10 years ago, I was reading a book and I got to a section called The Threat of Grace. The Threat of Grace. And it's so important and it was so significant when I first read it that I just want to share a couple of paragraphs with you. The author says this, when many people, excuse me, when many first hear the distinction between religion and the gospel, they think it sounds too easy. Nice deal, they may say. If that is true Christianity, all I have to do is get a personal relationship to God and then do anything I want. Those words, however, can be spoken, can only be spoken on the outside of an experience of radical grace. No one from the inside speaks like that. In fact, grace can be quite threatening. Some years ago, I met with a woman who began coming to church. She said that she had gone to church growing up and had never before heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion. She'd always heard that God accepts us only if we are good enough. She said that the new message was scary. I asked her why it was scary and she replied, quote, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace, there's nothing, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. She understood the dynamic of grace and gratitude, the author writes. Grace, threatening, grace, scary. And yes, to these Judaizers in Antioch and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, grace how Peter articulated, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, is a bit threatening. So my friends, we are all, in one way or another, recovering Pharisees. There's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Why? Because our, our profession, our possession doesn't match our profession. There's a gap. There's a gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. That's, the gap is going to exist all the way until we're glorified. Sanctification is, of course, closing the gap, making it a little bit less each and every day. So I have to ask myself and ask all of us this question. Have we abandoned our attempts, whichever, whatever they may be, to earn God's favor, to earn his approval, to stay in his approval. Have we abandoned that and have we instead bowed to his humbling mercy? And my friends, mercy is really humbling because the gospel is charity. And only when we admit we are absolutely broke and poor and helpless does our hand, as it were, reach out and take what we're being given. 
So there's Peter's speech. And here's Paul and Barnabas' testimony. Luke does not give much time. Verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. Wow. Peter's speech must have started to have an effect. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas report once again the work that God has done. And then beginning in verse 13, we read this. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. James, the Lord's half-brother, the, the, the one who didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, the, the one who becomes a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Because what turns the tide of the debate was not just an appeal to experience, but rather how that experience was interpreted based on Scripture. Let's read what James says. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and that's actually Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James continues, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. You see, Peter is tying God's present welcome of the Gentiles to the Old Testament hope and promise. And his task here is twofold. He's to show from Scripture, from Scripture that God always had intended salvation of the Gentiles. It goes back to the blessing of Abraham. What? Abraham is going to be blessed. Why? To be a blessing so that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So his first task is to show from Scripture that God has planned for all time for the salvation of Gentiles. And secondly, to propose solutions to the problems raised by the Judaizers. Now on the basis of Amos 9, 11, and 12, which you just heard read, James offers two solutions. First, that no one interferes with God's plan of accepting the Gentiles. And second, since God has accepted both Jews and Gentiles. You are too as well. Now I want to continue reading. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's this list of four things, kind of three having to do with ceremonial blood and one with like sexual immorality. And scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. And what most everybody comes to the conclusion here is it's, it's a concession. It's a concession. It's, it's, 
James is recommending that each side should make concessions to accept the other. James did not abolish the law, but he interpreted it more correctly under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You see, James comes up with a practical compromise that takes into consideration both Jew and Gentile. And more about this next week when we look at the letter itself, the declaration. It's important to remember that this is a critical matter. This is a crucial situation. And yet, in the midst of that, there is compromise where possible. You know, we are living in a day of extremes, right? However you want to look at it, the left, the right, the conservative, the liberal, everything is moving toward a polar end. And unfortunately and sadly, what is missing is moderation. Moderation. And here you see a great example of moderation, holding fast to that which cannot be compromised and, and, and giving ground, being sensitive to the scruples of Jewish Christians. You see, Jewish Christians must recognize that Gentiles aren't going to be bound by, by uh, Jewish ceremonial law, in particular, the external sign of circumcision. Why? From the beginning. It's an internal thing, right? It's a hard thing. And Gentile Christians must consider and be sensitive to their brothers and sisters of Jewish origin. Now, next week, we'll look at the decision of the council and the declaration of the council uh, that it makes. But let's make a few concluding observations on disagreements and debates within the church. And so from our brief exploration of Luke's account of the Jerusalem council, I think we can see at least three things. First, the blessing of church councils. The blessing of church councils. Uh, every time we use the Apostles' Creed, every time we use the Nicene Creed, every time we use parts of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, um, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, it's products of, of church meetings, products of church councils. It's, it, it's a blessing. Um, I want to draw your attention just briefly to chapter 33, excuse me, 31 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, it says this in uh, paragraph 3 of chapter 31 of Synods and Councils. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as a help in both. I mean, it's interesting. The Westminster Confession of Faith is saying itself it may Air, because you've got to go to Scripture. What do the Scriptures teach? And that's why the experience of what Peter shared and the experience of what Paul and Barnabas shared had to be tested with Scripture. Scripture is the norm. Scripture is the rule. The blessing of church councils. Uh, the fact that we're in the PCA is a great blessing. Why? Because we're part of a presbytery that's part of a general assembly. We're not out on our own. There's mutual accountability, mutual encouragement. This coming Presbytery meeting is sort of like a small church council. Second, not only the blessing of church councils, but the need for considered, that is thoughtful, compromise. The need for considered, that is 
thoughtful compromise. Um, not everything is a life and death matter. Certain things are. And the way the apostles and elders defended the gospel against gospel plus shows that the gospel is a matter of life and death. Some things are, but not everything is. Everything is not black and white. You see, God has been pleased to leave some matters a little bit less black and white than we may want. Why? So we can walk by faith and not by sight, and so we can get along with others in the church. One of my good friends and theological mentors, Robert Lethem, who wrote a great book on the theology of the Westminster Assembly, reminds us that the Westminster Confession of Faith is in and of itself a compromised document. I think there's a tendency of all of us to think of compromise as jettisoning the faith. As Robert Lethem says in an article, if in a marriage you are unwilling to compromise between husband and wife, your marriage is going to be on the rocks. Not all compromise is bad. In fact, our confession of faith is a beautiful example of what a church council does together. And finally, there's the blessing of the church councils. There's the need for considered, that is, thoughtful compromise. And finally, there's the call for Christian charity, the call for Christian love. You see, there's a recovering Pharisee in all of us, and I include myself. I'm always tempted to elevate works over grace. It's part of my old DNA that still tries to grab hold sometimes. We're always tempted to elevate works over grace. But if we think about anything, the gospel is God's love for us, is it not? It's a message of good news. That God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's love. And, and, and in 1 John, we, we read this. We love because he first loved us. And who does John go on to talk about? Loving our brothers. God first loves us. He, he, he announces the good news of the gospel. He, he, he did the work behind the gospel. It's good news of something that's been done for us. It's love. And because he first loves us, we can then love him and love one another. You see, my friends, if this council had gone off the rails, we might be grace and peace Gentile church. And somewhere else in Bellevue, maybe grace and peace Jewish church, right? See, the Jerusalem council was a crossroads. Was there going to be one church with one people or was it going to be you do it your way and I'll do it my way? Unity in Christ. Love in Christ. I'd like to end by just reading a few verses from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Colossians 3 verses 11 through 15. And, and I imagine some of what Paul writes has is, is got in the background the church council that he participated in and how people are to treat one another. Here's what he writes. 
Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's Jews and Gentiles. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And be thankful. I actually forgot verse 11 and started with verse 12. And here's verse 11. Here here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The Jerusalem council could have as I said, led to the Greek church, the Jewish church, but no, it's one church in Christ. May that be true here as well. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this history lesson that you've preserved for us. But, oh, Father, as your word is living and active, as your word is been breathed out by you, by your spirit. Oh, Father, your word is truth. Your word is life. And we thank you, Father, for this great example of how controversy in the church was dealt with. Father, may you be pleased to use the principles that we see here applied in how we act with one another going forward. Father, be pleased to continue to build your church as one people in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We respond by